Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Three years ago, Shailene Woodley pulled the plug. She called her agents and told them not to send her any more scripts. And just like that, she stopped working. At just 24, Shailene was a 20-year veteran of the entertainment industry. She'd hit all the milestones of a rising star. A childhood spent on television, most notably as the lead on The Secret Life of the American Teenager. A breakout big-screen debut in The Descendants, for which she earned a stack of industry nominations a heart-smashing role in The Fault in Our Stars, the definitive drama of her generation. Shailene was primed and flush with opportunity, but then she walked away. Shailene says she was burnt out. After two decades of celebrity, she just needed time to be a human. Among her other most notable talents, Shailene is gifted with an especially distinctive one, an innate understanding of who she is and what she believes. She's unapologetic in her stance on ecological preservation and left-leaning politics. And during her time off, she was famously arrested while protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline alongside the Standing Rock tribe, whose land and water was under threat. She then campaigned for Bernie Sanders and joined the board of Our Revolution, a progressive political educational group. She ditched her Hollywood persona, as well as her home and most of her belongings, and allowed herself to be a 20-something, and free, or at least as free as she could be. But then the phone rang. Her agent had a script too good to pass up. The story of a single mother and rape survivor forging an unlikely alliance among the wealthy wives of Monterey, California. It sounded great, but Shailene passed. The next time her phone rang, it was Laura Dern, who urged her to at least read it. So she did. And just like that, Shailene Woodley's sabbatical was over. In Big Little Lies, she saw a woman's story that had to be told. It was about exposing abuses of power, the unshakable force of women united, and the steeliness born of surviving trauma. It was also a really big hit. And last month, Shailene and her co-stars launched the most hotly anticipated second season of the year. Big Little Lies not only sparked a national conversation, It brought Shailene back to acting and storytelling with renewed vigor and a sense of purpose. And more than anything, it seems purpose is at the root of what drives her, whether it's acting or activism. She may be harder to predict, but no matter where Shailene Woodley is headed next, we're coming along for the ride. Shailene Woodley, it's such a pleasure to have you on Unstyle today. I'm so happy to be here. Really happy to talk to you. It was a lot of work getting you in the studio. Was it? (laughs) Well, you have a lot of stuff going on. You're a very, very busy person, and I don't mean just with promoting films and Big Little Lies. So I want to go back a little bit because you and I have met before. We had the pleasure of being at Web Summit together. We were on a panel in front of an obscene amount of people. And it was three years ago. And for whatever reason, fate played its hand. Our panel was the day after Election Day here in the United States. And our panel was about being mission-driven through content, through initiatives, through protesting, activations, all that kind of stuff. And we got the news that morning, the day of our panel, 
that our current president was being elected. And it was a very, very strange mood because we weren't home. But I remember I was with my husband too, and you were with one of your good friends. And it was just a completely surreal experience. But here's what I remember about you and also the fact that you were really extraordinarily famous at that point too. And we were on stage together. Of course, I was nervous about meeting you for the first time and having this pretty heavy conversation on stage, but also with the sort of shadow of what had just happened. And I remember very clearly, you were like, we're going to turn this into a really positive experience. You had such an optimistic stance. I don't know if it was naivete or if it was just your attitude, but we ended up having a really, really great constructive conversation. And so many people came up to us after. You remember the lines of people that came up to us afterwards? Oh, yeah. It was like a rush of people just wanting to connect and talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I am an eternal optimist. You could put me in the worst situation in the entire world. My glass is never half full. It's like overflowing full, (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't work for everyone in my life. But it's, I guess, my coping mechanism to looking at the world around me and going, well, I have the choice to go to bed with fear every day because that's how I've been conditioned or that's what mass media wants me to feel or that's what's going to keep me distracted to not actually do the work that needs to be done to fix the systems that are incredibly broken or just rewrite new systems. And that day in particular, I still see a silver lining in this entire situation, which doesn't discredit any, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be accountability. There are a lot of things that can't and will never be justified. And That it doesn't deserve forgiveness necessarily, but I do see the mobilization and the momentum that has been built because of what happened in 2016. And I'm not just talking about Trump's getting elected, but even what happened with Standing Rock, what happened with so many different political and activist-driven movements in that particular time period has carried on to today. The amount of connections that were made because everyone felt disenfranchised or a lot of people felt disenfranchised, a lot of people felt unseen and unheard. You know, you were seeing people from extremely wealthy neighborhoods converse for the first time with people from other neighborhoods because everyone realized that money wasn't going to make you safe anymore. Privilege wasn't going to keep you safe. Privilege wasn't going to separate you from everyone else so that you could continue to pretend like the world existed in a particular bubble and vice versa. That's what kind of has been needing to happen. Obviously, I wish it had happened under very different circumstances and in very different ways. But there is a sense of community that I do think has come from 2016. And I'm not only talking about progressives, even people who voted for Trump. I have family members in other areas of our country who are sick of working two, three, four jobs just to pay the rent that's $600 a month and to feed their family top ramen every day because they can't afford any other food or they have diabetes because they've been eating McDonald's their entire life because that's the cheapest thing they can afford. And you have this person all of a sudden standing up going, I'm going to change all of this. I'm going to bring jobs back. And now it's been almost four years and they're like, I'm still working my three jobs and I'm still eating the same shit and my healthcare is still the same. And you haven't held up any of your promises. And so the sort of disenfranchisement that's come from that demographic, those people are now finding communities and relationships within their towns and their villages that I think may not have happened had 2016 not gone the way it went. And 
again, like it's not the way that I wish it was, but I can't help but be optimistic about things moving forward because in the old, it's kind of the only way I know how to survive. No, there's definitely been some dark reactions in terms of just white supremacy and xenophobia. I think the pendulum has really been swinging in the most dramatic way, but I have to agree with you. I find the mobilization and the sense of community that people are really seeking out, not just for information, but for support and for guidance, hopefully to not find ourselves in this situation come next year. I want to switch over to talking about Big Little Lies because obviously it's very relevant right now. I first want to talk about the fact that you switched over to a woman director, Mm -hmm. Andrea Arnold. First of all, the profile in The New Yorker about her was so interesting. She is just such a prolific director and so creative. But Jean-Marc Vallée, who's also an incredibly prolific director who did Sharp Objects, he did the premiere season. I'm just curious, what was your sort of perspective about switching over from the first season to the second? Because there's obviously so much anticipation about this show coming back. Mm -hmm. Did you see like a big shift in terms of just the perspective, you know, switching from a man to a woman? To be honest, no, I didn't. It's hard for me, to be honest, because I I don't necessarily see people as like man, woman. I see feminine, masculine. And so Andrea definitely brought much more of a feminine touch to the show. Like the show, the way that she shot it, I believe that this wasn't just because she was a woman. It's because of who she is as a human. There was an intensity to it that I found really riveting. And I think that that's what I mean. Like for me, when you see a movie, so much of it has to do with the cinematography, but also the way the director chooses to capture perspective. Mm -hmm. And Andrea's was just more feminine. And it was interesting because... What worked really well in the first season was you had this amazing, giant female cast. All that femininity was juxtaposed with this sharp, direct masculinity, which was also within the characters. But Jean-Marc chose to kind of highlight that more in a way than the soft feminine. There's like a really strong physicality in season one in terms of how men and women relate to each other and just the view of sex and sexuality. There's a real power struggle there. And even just between Reese Witherspoon's character and Adam Scott, they're having this very serious tension around their sexuality and how they actually show love to each other. But then also, and what I loved about the New Yorker piece was talked about Andrea's love of dance. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first episode, you're dancing on the beach. And dancing is a really important form of expression to Andrea as a director. And the way that she actually said... I dance a lot for real, so anything I write is always going to have music and dancing because it's just part of my life. I can't really imagine making a film that doesn't have dancing in it, actually. As I'm going on, there's more dancing. Maybe I'm getting happier. And also just talked about after, like, certain performances, she feels like she's had sex with, like, 100 people. Mm -hmm. There's something very visceral about that, which I think is really beautiful because that was a, a really strong characteristic with your character, Jane, that tracked from season one to season two. But you love to dance. I love to dance. I mean, for me, it's very similar. Actually, Andrea and I, one of the first things we bonded over was dance. For me, dance is therapy. I'm always either dancing or singing. And sometimes I'll post the videos on Instagram, but I have one probably every day. There's something that I release when I'm dancing that I can't and don't know how to release in any other way. I think in America, sensuality is something that's so misunderstood and not taught and not talked about. We're all very familiar with sexuality. It's in our faces constantly. It's everywhere in mass media. We've got porn. Sexuality is 
very, very alive in our country. But sensuality is something that's very alive in Europe and in other parts of the world, but we're really lacking here. And dance to me is a way to really root down in what feels good on a sensual level. I think people are afraid of that, though. I think that that really requires a certain intimacy with your body and with your being. And I also think that when you're really enjoying yourself and dancing, there is a transcendence that happens. But I think it does become spiritual for a lot of people. If you're really kind of just surrendering, it's really great exercise too. It's a Yeah, it's great exercise. I know. But you don't really recognize it as exercise because it just feels so good. And I think we're afraid of it because it's one of, I think, the greatest tragedies of our time that we don't talk about enough. But young people aren't taught about their bodies. The way that sex is introduced to so many people is pleasure for the other person and yourself-ish. But doing it because of peer pressure, because it's cool, or because you're supposed to sound a certain way or look a certain way or be a certain way instead of intimately, emotionally connecting with someone and then seeing what happens with your bodies once you emotionally connect. And that's where the sensuality is missing. Like sensuality is so emotion-based. I think it's starting to change though. And hopefully in a really constructive way where it's more about feeling an honoring of your body. You know, it starts with appreciation and just really feeling gratitude that your body works and that it's this finely tuned instrument. It's a miracle that we all exist. It is. Totally is a miracle. So I'd obviously done a ton of research about you before our talk, but I really loved how you sold off all your belongings and really just wanted to live a freer life. So you spent seven years living a really transient life Mm -hmm. and sleeping, you know, at friends' houses, family members, hotels, and just having really, really minimal possessions. What was the thing that you were hoping for as a result of that experience? You need to come over and help me clean my closet. (laughs) I'm really good at it. I'm also really good in shopping at my friend's closet. So if you have anything you want to give me. (laughs) No, but I have sentimental connections to a lot of my stuff. I'm older than you. So I think that maybe that is a harder habit to break as you get older because there are these little threads connected to loves and experiences and the person I once was. And even though that's still kind of integrated in me, but you need to come over and help me clean a closet. I feel like I'm a little bit like a monk in my perspective of things. Obviously, it's not easy for me not to keep things. It's very difficult. But at the same time, I feel lighter and I feel better. I was talking to a friend the other day and uh, he was like, remember this one thing? And I was like, no, you know what I've realized about myself recently is that I don't remember a lot. Like I really don't. I have big gaps of space. And when I was talking to my therapist about it a few months ago, because I got worried and he was like, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you have so much going on in your life that you move from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And sometimes maybe you don't take time to like really digest something because you're already moving on to the next thing. And my friend, I was explaining that to him and I was like, I have a little bit of guilt about that. And he was like, I think it's beautiful, Shay. It means that you're just constantly creating new space for new experiences and newness. And it doesn't mean that you don't discredit what has happened, but you're not holding on to the past because you're making space for what could come. 
And I was like, wow, thank you for giving me that validation. And it helped release a little bit of guilt that I had had. But well, what was the guilt from? Was it because people made you feel like you weren't remembering something that mattered to them? Yeah, or that like certain relationships didn't mean as much to me as maybe they meant to the other person. And I felt bad about that. And ultimately, because I exist so fully when I'm with someone, I give everything of my, that's not true. I have a lot that I don't share, but most people think they know me the minute that I meet them because I'm a very open, truthful, honest person. And I think because I do that and because it's actually quite rare to have that, a lot of people feel very close to me very quickly. Whereas I feel open with them, but I don't necessarily consider them part of my close sacred circle of friends. And so that can get misconstrued. And I think in my early 20s, I wasn't always as aware of that. And so I didn't handle it as gracefully. And now I'm very good about just communicating to people and saying, look, I, I don't text back and I probably won't call back. The private time that I do have is so special and sacred to me that that is reserved for the relationships that I already have in my life kind of a thing. I don't know. I think that's an expression of maturity too. I actually spoke to a friend of mine who's a doctor and he said that we have a really brilliant ability to just file. We file things. And it's yeah. just like you instinctually know when something needs to be fully integrated into your being because you're going to need it. You're going to need to access it in some way to sort of use it as a tool to move forward, <laughs> move forward or apply it in a new way so you can learn and not repeat a mistake. And that also can work against us because we can end up getting caught in patterns and things that make us do the same things. And it's like, why am I always attracting the same kind of person into my life? Like, right. what does that mean? But I do think that living minimally probably helps you to just feel less It helps me feel more surrendered. It helps me feel more out of control. And I'm a very controlling person, especially when it comes so. to myself. Well, I just, I'm very responsible. I started working when I was five years old and I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> like everything about my life is serious. I'm serious by nature. And if I'm supposed to be somewhere at a certain time and it's in alignment with my path, I will be there before I'm meant to be there. I'm very responsible, almost to a fault sometimes. Shailene was early today, just so everyone should know that. <laughs> Let's talk about your character, Jane. Is it true that you actually suggested she cut bangs and yeah. create that hairstyle? Yeah. Why? So the first season I changed my body because I wanted Jane to feel like Jane. I didn't want her to feel like Shailene playing Jane. And I imagined myself in a situation that Jane had been in and how I would hold myself and how I would eat and how I would move or not move or the stress levels that I would have. So we did that in season one. Season two, I felt like when I have experienced the trauma in my life, I built my identity with that story and with that trauma. Mm -hmm. And the minute that I felt released from some of it, or not that you ever get rid of trauma, but that you can walk with it instead of sort of feeling like it's constantly it's not within you. you. Yes. You're walking side by side with it and you find some sense of healing. I have always made a dramatic shift in my body, whether it's like losing weight, not intentionally, but because I'm just not stressed anymore. And so all of a sudden your body's like, oh, I can move or I've cut my hair or I'll get a piercing. Like I do something because my body and my mind are identifying with a new version of me outside of that story. And I wanted to do that with Jane in the second season. I wanted 
to see what she would have done. She got a new apartment. We made the decision that she went through her closet and she got rid of everything that she had worn for the last seven years and she took it to like a Buffalo exchange or a crossroads and she traded it in for a whole new wardrobe that redefined who she was and how she wanted to dress and how she wanted to look. And the bangs was a very dramatic decision. I wanted something that really was a big difference. That wasn't just something small. And I couldn't dye my hair because I was doing another project right afterwards. But I thought that the bang could be a a decision that maybe she would regret a few weeks later. You know, I shouldn't have done that. But at least I look in the mirror and I see my new self and not the self that has been haunted by the ghost of season one. So in episode two, you have an interaction with the guy that Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. You work with mm-hmm. at this conservation center. Is that correct? Yeah, an aquarium. Yes, an aquarium. And he tries to kiss your character, Jane, who's obviously had this incredibly difficult, very violent thing happen to her. And you kind of lean back and then you surrender to this hug and you're swaying. And I think that there is something to talk about with touch and how people that have been through traumatic physical experiences, even just emotional experiences, how difficult it is to feel safe in intimate moments with other people. It doesn't even need to be with a physical or sexual partner, but to sort of just really give yourself in that moment to just receive this really nice, warm attention, I guess, or just comfort. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't speak for Jane because I haven't been in her situation, but I can speak for myself, which is what I brought to that day in that particular scene. Was it hard? It was hard only because it's terrifying. I feel like I could cry right now. I have never been raped, and I'm very fortunate enough to be able to say that, but I have had a traumatic sexual experience, and it probably took me to like 26 years old, which was only about almost two years ago, to be able to feel fully 100% safe intimately with someone and not be in my head about what's going to happen after this or will something else happen or what's this person thinking? What do I feel? What am I thinking? You know, I think it's really easy to cover that stuff up and pretend like it's all good. But deep down, there's extreme panic. And that's what I felt with Jane. Like she didn't have the hardened walls that I had been able to build throughout my life to pretend like it's all fine and project that I'm totally comfortable when I completely wasn't. But I think that she went into complete panic. You go into shock. Your body doesn't know how to react. Even if your mind is living in 2019, your body is still living in 2013 when that event occurred. And that's how in that moment when Corey, this other character, approaches her, 
she's trying to rationalize within her own mind and fight her own battles of like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not good enough? Why can't I trust again? Why can't I love again? Why can't I? And everything is internalized as an attack against herself when in reality, her body's just going, I don't know how because I haven't had the opportunity to learn and I don't even know what it's like to feel safe. So you have to mind, body talking to mind, you have to take the first step to allow some healing to occur and then give me the time and the space to gently start rewriting my story as the body because emotionally like the mind-body connection is so conflicting and it's so deeply rooted and integrated within one another that oftentimes they're on different timelines and I know a lot about that because I study the mind-body connection a lot in my spare time even while I'm working but that was something that was very integral for me for Jane the fact that her mind and body were working on different timelines and the confusion and self-attack that comes from that. Wow. Your parents are both psychologists, psychoanalysts? Psychologists. What was that like growing up, considering what you just said about this interest, this real passion that you have? How did they help you find your place in that? Um, With that, they didn't. I mean, my parents are incredible, incredible people. And I would say that the ways in which they helped me the most was through sharing stories of what they experienced. So my mom was a middle school counselor my entire childhood, and my dad was a school psychologist, and then he was a school principal. And then I think he went back to school psychology. Now he's an independent therapist. But for the longest time, they were both school psychologists. And they would come home, and we'd be sitting at the dinner table, and we always did this thing that was called highs and lows. And we'd all have to go around and say what our high of the day was and what our low of the day was. And... The reason why they felt lows were important is it was a way for us to celebrate the highs and to stay aware of the polarities of life. And so they'd come home and they'd be like, oh, the high of the day is I get to be at dinner with you guys. And the low of the day is I had to deal with a kid today who watched his father commit suicide in front of him and a mom who then just like drank a bottle of vodka and now the kid has nowhere to go and their social services. So he might come stay the night at our house tomorrow night. Like that was Did the that kind actually of- happen? Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Those were the conversations that, I grew up hearing and anytime somebody was bullied in my mom or dad's school or a kid would bring a knife to school or a kid would bring a gun to school and they'd come home and they'd be like, man, it was scary because there was these weapons. And at the same time, they never demonized those kids. They were like, God, I pray that they don't go to jail because this kid just needs someone to love them. This kid just needs someone to tell them that they're worth it. It makes me want to cry that they're worth it, that they're worthy, that they have a place in this world, that they're seen, that they're heard. It's all any of us want. It's all any of us want. We're all just trying to do the best we can. We all just want love and we all just want to love and we don't know how. That's the problem. Nobody at a young age is telling kids that they matter. So you're constantly looking for other people to fill all of these things within us because we don't know that we matter. So I want to talk a little bit about how you choose roles because Mm -hmm. you made an interesting switch that I think a lot of people don't do going from Disney and then really making the leap to much more serious, meaty, highbrow films. And I'm not saying that that's an impossible jump to make. I just don't think a lot of people end up doing it and being successful at it. I would say maybe that first really significant role where people saw you in a dramatic way was in The Descendants, which Mm -hmm. was directed by Alexander Payne. Look, I started acting when I was five, and it was always a hobby. It was always something that was just fun. I wrote at seven years old that the day I'm on the cover of a magazine, I'll quit. I never wanted it to be a full-time job or a career. I really wanted it to be my passion project. And 
What it's did so you want to do? What did you think your job was going to be? I mean, as a kid, I was like, I want to be a teacher because I, I saw my parents and I saw how they influenced kids' lives. So you never looked at it as like a serious profession. I did in the way of like it was something I always wanted to do, but I always wanted to do other things. And I think that really protected me as a young person to know like I had heard of Sideways, but I'd never seen it when I worked at the AP. I'd never seen anything that he had done. I'd seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I'd seen Up in the Air. And that was maybe it of George's film. So I didn't walk into The Descendants going, oh, my God, I'm working with this legend George Clooney and this legend Alexander Payne. I walked in going, wow, the whole world thinks these two men are the shit. And the movies that I have seen or heard of were cool. But I don't know who they are, so I'm going to get to know them for them first. Yeah. And that was very special and really kind of set the tone for how I wanted to execute the rest of my entire career. To this day, it's been almost 10 years since we filmed that movie. And I know that if I needed something, I could call either of those men and they would be there for me in a second. And that just doesn't happen. I really gained two father figures, big brother figures, uncle kind of roles. And they definitely helped guide me on my journey. Obviously, your career completely changed after that. Was it scary? It wasn't scary. I don't do anything unless I'm comfortable with it. And there were a lot of things that happened that I was not comfortable with, so I just didn't do it and participate. Like what? Like fashion. Like all of a sudden, I went from sewing my own clothes and going to vintage stores and thrift stores and like stocking Etsy and re-sewing everything in high school to like create the style I wanted to create and stocking sales in different places with my babysitting money and feeling like I could creatively express myself and digging style to all of a sudden executives from studios saying you need to dress more cosmopolitan and you have to wear this Dior, the Chanel or this whatever it was outfit, even if you don't like it, because it's going to get you into certain doors and Vogue will pay more attention to you and you'll get invited to this thing and you'll get invited to that and you'll get this press opportunity. And even if you don't like it, even if you don't like, I'll never forget. I wore a dress. It was some big design house. I can't remember who it was, but I remember with Silas going, you have to wear this because if you wear this, then we'll be able to pull other things that you will like. And I was like, but I feel like a Fruit Loop. Like, I don't feel like myself. It's like a costume. I felt like the fairy in Wizard of Oz. It was not me at all. And she was like, well, you kind of got to. And I was like, okay, I will. And on that red carpet, I was like, I no, I hate this and I'll never do this again. And in that moment, I was like, I'm not going to really do hair from red carpets. I'm not really going to do makeup. And I'm definitely not going to play the style game. I'll wear dresses that I love. I don't care who designs them. And I turned my back on fashion altogether because I felt so rageful that people were trying to steal my personal style and identity in order to use me kind of as a hanger to fulfill the need of what actresses were supposed to look like and supposed to wear. And to be honest, like it worked. My plan worked. People didn't pay attention to me and what I was wearing and people didn't really care. And I wasn't invited to certain things, but that brought me joy because it meant I got to be me. And then in the last couple of years, I've had a completely different relationship with fashion that's been really exciting and incredible. But during that time, that was the most uncomfortable thing because I was like, I'm an actor. A, I'm not a model. And B, like I don't want to look pretty all the time. Sometimes I want to look like a little punk. And sometimes I want dirt under my fingernails because I actually think that looks cool with my Doc Martens. And there were certain things that I wasn't allowed to do per se, but I did it anyway. And at least I feel like I can walk away going, I held my integrity, even if no one else understood it. But I did see you recently last season at the Carolina Herrera show. And Wes Gordon, who's the designer for that house now is such a lovely person and so kind 
And you looked really beautiful and you looked like yourself. I felt like you were not letting anybody tell you what the fuck to wear. I felt like in my early 20s, I was like, I'm not going to do anything with fashion the way that fashion, quote unquote, exists on the mainstream level until I know how it works. And so for the last few years, I've just been getting to know designers behind the scenes and I've been getting to understand the process of how it happens and getting to know the artistry behind it and the creativity behind it. I finally felt like I could participate and still be me and walk into a room and say like, no, I don't really love that, but I do really love this. And if we can't find a healthy balance, then that's great. But like, we'll just go our own ways for now and maybe come back together and collaborate on a different collection. And those were things that I didn't know I could do when I was younger. And so I really love getting older. I love it so much. I think it's one of the greatest blessings of life, age. I fucking love it. (laughs) It's a privilege to get older. It It really is. is. I feel lucky. I think it's the regrets part that really like fucks you up. Yeah. I try to live with no regrets. I really do. I'd rather have done it and gone, ugh. Then have wondered for the rest of my life, what would it have been like if I hadn't? Oh, yeah. I think for the majority, and I've also read this, is that most people regret the things that they didn't do, not the things that they did. Yeah. You're a really big proponent of Mm self-care. And it's interesting. I think you were ahead of your time in that way, just like being really open about talking about things that you were interested in, whether it was like oil pulling or different kinds of nutritional things, like eating clay. But... What are you doing now to like take care of yourself? To be honest, it's become so much easier for me. I used to do a lot of things externally because I thought that that was what was going to bring me the most wellness and I was getting sick all the time still. And, you know, with the amount of traveling I do, I guess it's inevitable. You're constantly surrounded by other people's germs and coughs and sneezes when you're on these planes. And But now, honestly, my only real wellness hack is just finding joy and sleeping. I would say that those are probably the two biggest things. And then maybe some vitamin C packets. I do swear by vitamin C. But other than that, like I love the natural world and I love herbs, but I was paying no attention to my mental health and my stress levels and my worry and my anxiety. And all of that has affected my body so much more than airplanes or not eating healthy foods, et cetera. So for me now, it really is like sleep is a major one. And then the other one is mental health. And sometimes that looks like meditation. Sometimes that looks like winding down and just watching a movie at the end of the night. Sometimes that means taking a hot bath. Sometimes it means traveling with your best friend or talking to your best friend on the phone. It comes in a lot of different forms, but that's my number one kind of, and I haven't been sick in a really long time. And I think it's because I finally started paying attention to my mind. And I think it's really easy to override how many negative voices we actually have in our heads towards ourselves constantly. And that has been my number one focus for the last long while. And it's made a big difference. What's your advice to people about combating those voices? We all have them. One thing that my therapist said to me that I will take with me for the rest of my life is I had all of these patterns, like, why do I keep attracting these certain people or situations? or And he was like, do you ever realize that you disconnect from yourself in order to connect with others? And I was like, and I started bawling, crying because he was so right. And it's such a simple thing to say out loud, but to actually internalize that and, and decide what that meant for me. There was actually a really interesting quote that I read. I think it was in Porter Magazine or maybe even Vogue where you talked about how you kind of needed to reclaim this relationship with acting, which is what got you interested in doing Big Little Lies in the first place. But I feel like you're someone that's obviously very private about your personal relationships. 
and love, but you're in such an interesting place in your life. If you're into astrology, you know you're starting to get ready to go through your Saturn return, which is like really Just big about shit, there. <laughs> which is some really, really heavy duty shit. And I am doing my second Saturn return too, because mm-hmm. I'm at that stage of my life. And I just remember feeling this insane combination of excitement and anticipation, but also tremendous fear because your life is now fully forming. Mm-hmm. How do you look at relationships now? And like, what attracts you to somebody? It's changed so much in the last few years. I mean, I was very much in an open relationship for a bit in my 20s. Was that by choice? Yeah, yeah, totally by choice. And it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was incredible. It was one of the best experiences of my life until it didn't work anymore. But that wasn't because it was open. It was just because of where we were both at in our lives. But then I met somebody who had very different ways of approaching relationships, which is much more traditional. And it kind of put me in this interesting position where I was like, wow, I want to have a family and I want to have safety, but I also am a lover. For me, sex is not inclusive or exclusive of love. And it's not that monogamy scares me for sexual reasons. It scares me for more of emotional reasons Mm -hmm. because I so deeply believe that we have multiple soulmates and that they all fill different roles. Like some might be a brother role or a sister role or a best friend role or a lover role or a life partner role. And you never know when you're going to meet these people. But when you do, which is not often and very rare to turn away from it, to not explore it, to not have even like deep conversations that emotionally might be breaking the agreement that you have with your monogamous partner. That's something that I still struggle with to this day of like, how can I move forward and achieve what I want, which is safety and security. And I think ultimately a family dynamic that is traditional and yet still explore these very potent and stunning, very deeply, almost spiritual cosmic collisions, as I like to call them, when these certain individuals walk in and out of your life. And and I don't have an answer for it, but I'm very lucky to have someone very special in my life. You know, I think it's difficult in relationships because I've only ever experienced one person fighting harder for the other. And in that, there's not a lot of honesty because somebody is always either getting dragged along or because there's not full transparency of I love you and also I am scared or I love you and also I might love someone else or whatever the conversation may be. And I just decided when I met an individual a few years ago that I would do nothing but be honest from day one. And I was very fortunate to have the same thing from him. And so throughout our entire time of knowing one another have just been incredibly open and transparent, even when it's really, really hard. You know, I had to make a phone call and say some things that nobody wants to hear when you're in a relationship with somebody, but that if I hadn't said them, I would feel like I was deceiving this person or that I wasn't being open and honest. And, you know, he's had to do similar things with me and draw boundaries with me in order to make sure that he is fulfilling his integrity in his life. And I don't have an answer for it. And we're definitely not like together at this time, but the fact that we can communicate openly and honestly with one another, like I could die happy tomorrow. Like for me, and it makes you want to cry, like that is true love to be able to just honestly talk to somebody. So to have for the last few years, a person who is fighting as hard as I am for honesty and truth, despite how hard it is, is 
the biggest blessing. And it's so special because you realize like, that's how I define love. I think that's why commitment also scares me because I don't ever want to feel like anyone is trapped in a situation that there's always room and freedom to communicate and to be honest, even if you are moving in separate ways or in different directions. But you can't think too far into the future and you have to be present with where you're at, but you have to be honest. And I see too many people repeating patterns that aren't honest. And I've saw myself do it for the majority of my life. And I just won't do it anymore. To the point where honesty without compassion can be cruelty, but you have to acknowledge that if you're not being open with somebody, then there's no way you could ever expect them to be open with you. And that's the first cycle in breaking fear is just acknowledging that you're really scared and doing it anyway. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Shailene Woodley, it's such a pleasure to have you on In Style today. Thank you for having me. I love spending time with you. Yeah, me too. This is really special. Honestly, for years, I've been like, when are we going to get to do our thing? <laughs> we did it today. We did it today. I hope you're inspired after hearing Shailene's story. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Rebecca Easley and Jay Brunson with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza, and our writer is Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with best-selling author and TV producer Stephanie Dandler on writing a new destiny. We'll see you then. <laughs> 